Hi everyone, Drew Road here from the Broken Brain Podcast. On today's episode, we have my dear friend, JJ Virgin, celebrity nutritionist and warrior mom, talking to us about her son's traumatic brain injury and life-changing moment that led to lessons of resilience, not only for her son, but for her entire family and what you can learn from this experience. Stay tuned for a super fascinating episode. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Pruitt. Each week, we'll bring on a new guest who we think might help you improve your brain health, live better, and feel your best. This week, my guest is my friend, celebrity nutritionist, and expert, fitness hall of famer, JJ Virgin. Thank you for being here, here. JJ. Thank you. So JJ teaches her clients how to break through food and carbohydrate intolerances so they can feel and look their best. JJ has been featured on TLC, Dr. Phil's, PBS, Dr. Oz, Rachel Ray, Access Hollywood, and The Today Show, and many, many other media outlets. JJ is the author of, get this, four New York Times bestsellers. Congratulations. Her latest book, Warrior Mom, Seven Secrets to Bold, Brave Resilience, shows mothers everywhere how to be strong positive leaders for their families. Many of the inspirational lessons from the book come from JJ's own experience fighting for her son's life. And we're going to talk about that in this podcast episode. If you like podcasts too, JJ hosts the popular JJ Virgin lifestyle show podcast with over 4.5 million downloads and counting. JJ, thanks for being on the Broken Brain podcast. So here's a fun fact. You ready for this? Yes. Tell me. So that book, Warrior Mom, was originally titled Miracle Mindset. And while I was taping broken brain yep. the docuseries someone said oh we had to have you on because you're such a you know like badass mom i think they might have said yeah and i said i'm a warrior mom and i immediately <laughs> left and called the publisher and went change the name that's right yep and you put the book out under the new title yep both are great there you go. But i like the new title fits better well speaking of being a warrior mom you know, you talked about this in Broken Brain One, but so many people listening to this podcast are new to this world of brain health. And I really think you've had this incredible and life-challenging story for you and your son. Let's start from the beginning. In 2012, you got a call. The worst oh, I did, call yeah. Ever. Actually, I didn't even get a call. And I think this, it, it is so key because you'll hear this story and while people might go, oh my gosh, you know, that's that's so extreme when you can take the extreme and go, okay, well, if you were able to turn the extreme around, think what you can do for, you know, a little bit of poor focus, right? What's possible I mean, in like, life it's so amazing. So, yes, this was right before The Virgin Diet was coming out. Busy, busy, crazy time for an author. And my kids were 15 and 16. Grant, my older, was 16. And I came home one night, and he was all stomping around the house, wanted to go to martial arts, and Dad said no. So he went out, stomping out, left the house to go to a friend's house, I assumed. And I went in the, the garage to work out, and in ran Bryce, my 15-year-old, and their dad, and said, Grant's been hit by a car and airlifted to the local hospital. Now, like... You know that people do not get airlifted if they've broken their leg. Right. Right? So we didn't know anything because at the time, the only reason we knew this had happened was they happened upon the accident scene, which was literally a couple blocks from our house. And the policeman looked at Grant and said, or looked at Bryce and said, a kid got hit. He looked just like him. And my sons are a year apart. We call them our Irish twins, right? They looked very much alike. So... 
We knew it was him, but that's all we knew, and they wouldn't give us any information. Oh, my gosh. So we're now driving 30 minutes to the hospital, no information. We walk in. They put us into a conference room with no information. Everyone looks really glum. At the hospital. At the hospital. I'm at, just assuming he's time, gone, right? You know. Uh, did you know it was a hit and run? Did you have any details we, at all? All we knew was that he was hit and airlifted. We didn't know in, in that it was a hit and run because our neighbor actually had blocked off the street with his car and protected him and called 911. And our neighbor had seen a woman get out of her car, stop, get out of her car, look back, gasp, get in her car, drive off. Oh so, But we didn't know that till later. So we walk in the conference room and this doctor walks in and starts asking us questions like, you know, what was your son doing out walking? I'm like, oh, stop it. You know, <laughs> tell me what's going on. And he said, well, your son was a victim of a hit and run. He has a torn aorta. Now, torn aorta, that kills 90% of the people on the scene. That's what Princess Diana died of. Said So he has a torn aorta. It's hanging on by an onion skin. And sometime in the next 24 hours, if it's not, if he hasn't had it repaired, it's going to rupture. Wow. But we can't repair it here because he also has diffuse axonal injuries, which meant he was in a deep coma with multiple brain bleeds. He said, if we were to fix it here, his brain would bleed out. So we would have to airlift him to another hospital. But he'll never survive the airlift to another hospital. And even if he were to survive that, he wouldn't survive that surgery. And even if he were to survive both of those, he'd be so brain damaged, it wouldn't be worth it. Which, of course, would get any parent's hackles up. Because I'm listening to this going, okay, 100% he's going to die here in the next 24 hours. And my son Bryce looks over and says, is there maybe a 0.25% chance he'd make it? And he goes, yeah, that sounds about right. Wow. And he's like, Bryce goes, well, that's better than zero. And that's when we said, we'll take those odds. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's through that episode, and we're going to continue to go through that story, that you essentially became an expert in traumatic brain injuries. Yes, very quickly. The, very quickly <laughs> became an expert in an industry. I mean, you've had a background in functional nutrition and, and wellness and, and that whole area, but traumatic brain injury for this severity is completely new. Mm -hmm. And I think our team pulled some of the stats. 1.7 million people a year suffer from a traumatic brain injury. 5.3 million people a year suffer from long-term yeah. disability. So most people who have a severe traumatic brain injury, if they're lucky enough to survive, don't get improvement. And, and in by fact, the their way, life there's no mess. information. I will tell you, I was told in the hospital that when he wakes up, it will be ugly. Now they didn't tell me it was going to be ugly for years. I thought it was meant for about 30 minutes, right? And there was no long term, here's what you need to do. In fact, the long term, they said, well, whatever improvement you get in the first six to 12 months is it. That's it. absolutely wrong information, mm. right? I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, we know exercise alone can can create new brain cells. So ridiculous information. But those statistics and one, in, I think it's the third leading cause. No, I think it's the first leading cause of death in children. Wow. Um, so when you look at these statistics and you go, this is kind of ignored. One of the reasons is, you know, we think of a traumatic brain injury as someone who's had a coma. If you hit your head, if you have concussion, you have a traumatic brain injury. If you hit your head really hard. I just had a friend the other day text me, said she was getting off the plane. She stood up and the guy next to her went and rushed to grab his bag and he hit her really hard in the head. And I was like, that's probably yeah. a mild concussion. That's a mild traumatic brain injury that you have. You have to figure out if you've been affected by it yeah and there's so the challenge we have is how do you know 
how do you know that you had that? And the best thing you can do is assume that you have. Mm-hmm. Like I was in a, a car accident on the freeway in the 405 where I was hit head on and rear ended. Boom, wow. boom. And cracked a Lexus SUV in half. So that just shows you how bad that was. And they were like, well, time will heal all wounds, you know? I mean, it was That's like, the primary answer like, is time. Right? They said, just time, a tincture of time. I'm like, time, if someone touches me, I get nauseous. Like, this is way past time. But there's no real way to look at this. And mm. the challenge with brain injuries is that one of the big side effects of having a, a traumatic brain injury, which means a concussion, and I like to, like Dr. Daniel Amen says, you know, if you hit your head, you hurt your brain, right? right. And uh, is, is depression, and not like mild depression, like suicidal depression. So you wonder with with all of the information out there, with, with the statistics of depression, how much of that could potentially be due to a traumatic brain injury? It's so true. That no one's diagnosing because it's not like we have a little test that we can do for it, right? It's one of those difficult things that right now the standard of care is stabilize the patient, make sure they're not bleeding, you can't see anything. Mm-hmm. And then just just wait. And wait then and wait. See. And that's not what you should be doing at all. There's such specific things that you need to be doing. And I just am thankful. Like the night that I got to the hospital, I just went, you know what? I know a lot of people. And at the time, Dr. Daniel Lehman was already Grant's doctor. We had mm. pre-accident spec scans. So he was already on fish oil. And this is a key takeaway. Grant was on five grams of fish oil prior to the accident. I don't think he would have made it without that. One of the big challenges we have is that it's hard to look and go, all right, I should do this because I might hit my head sometime. You know, someday in the future, I'm going to hit my head. I don't know about you, but I've hit my head multiple times. And I I, I, a few weeks ago trying to get spices out of the cabinet. (laughs) Yeah. So there you go. Like, I think if we were all sitting around a table eating dinner and we said, who, you know, who has hit their head in in this lifetime and felt like, "Mm -hmm," right? It'd be everybody. Everybody. Everybody Everybody. has a story, whether they played sports or whether they've just been a little clumsy and had it happen or had somebody hit them in a car accident. It's usually multiples. So you've got to, that's kind of step one is make sure you're on fish oil. It's neuroprotective. I mean, there's a whole lot of other great things that it does, but that's one of the key ones is get on fish oil, get your kids on fish oil, make sure you're taking antioxidants with it. But that, I believe, because he was on it already for bipolar disorder, that was one of the things that really saved him. Huge. Yeah. So let's go back to your story. You're there. The doctors just gave you this download. You have this mm-hmm. 0.25% chance of your son surviving. The situation is what the doctors were saying. Uh, what do you do from there? Tell us like what, you know, from there, they did they take you to see him? Yes. So the first thing we did was um, concentrate on the 0.25%. And not the point, you know, the 99.75%. And I think that's important because as long as it wasn't zero, we still had a chance. Um, we did go to see him. I will never forget this picture ever. Like, so he was lying on a gurney. I remember seeing him and thinking this must be a movie. Like your, I think your brain just goes to this instant. This is not real. Mm-hmm. You know, this must be a movie because n- no parent can look and see their child where he had 13 fractures. I remember looking going, oh, my gosh, those are bones sticking through his skin. He'd broken both his femurs. 
So he had both of those rotted in like one surgery with all the different surgical teams, but both femurs, 13 fractures and road rash down half his body. He literally had glass sticking out of his skin. He was on a ventilator central line and, you know, walked in and my son, who was 15, walks up and goes, dude, to him. I said, dude, you look really ugly right now. Was he conscious? Could he hear you guys? He Is was it- in a deep, deep coma. I mean, the only thing, you know, the, the neurosurgeon came up to us later because the guy who was like doom and gloom doctor, and, and you think about it, he was at Palm Springs. He was at Desert Hospital. You right. know, Suzanne Summers actually texted me later because that's where they misdiagnosed her. She goes, don't worry. I'm glad you got out of there. You right. know, it just I think about it and I go, all right, I can understand this. This is, you know, the only trauma center we could have gone to in the desert. But think about who they have coming in the door there. If an 80-year-old gets hit by a car and is in a deep coma, their chance of ever coming through it is pretty much, it is, yeah. zero. But you've got a 16-year-old and a really stubborn one. Like that's, I, I always tell Grant, you know, we called him Grant never gonna because they said, he's never going to talk. He's never going to walk. He's never. And my ex-husband said, you can prove them all wrong, which he has. So Bryce walks up and goes, dude, you look really ugly right now. But if anyone can pull through this, I know that you can. I'm just looking at my kid going, where is he getting this like, strength? <laughs> you know, my ex-husband and I are like, wow. But uh, we had to basically say goodbye to him. And not know, like, you know, we didn't know if he'd survive the airlift. We didn't know what would happen when we got to Harbor UCLA. We drove up there at 2 a.m. and got there, walked into a surgical suite that was like a complete polar opposite to Desert Hospital. Five surgical teams. One total angel of a doctor, Carlos Donaire, who at midnight got the facts about this, accepted the case on behalf of the hospital, Mm. recruited five surgical teams, got a hold of a stint that was no longer even around, that was part of a study that he wanted to use, used it on grant when it was only supposed to be used for adults, figured he'd ask for forgiveness. (laughs) And uh, when I walked in the door at 5 a.m. and saw this whole scene of all these surgical teams, he walked up, he goes, you the mom? You know, kind of obvious. And he goes, you don't need to worry. I totally got this. I do this all the time. I had someone thrown off an overpass last week and I fixed them up. Like, let me show you where I'm going to go fix them and walks me out of that room. Wow. And and he's like, I'll come get you in two hours when I'm done. It will be fine. And that was probably the first person that was a medical doctor that was at the facility in his care. What Was that the first person that actually gave you some glimmer of hope? The neurosurgeon at Desert, and I felt like he kind of went around the other doctors back. And before we were leaving, he goes, there's brain activity. He something he like did a little finger squeeze or something. He's in there. Go fight for it. Mm. You know, and hey, I just I sat there after I got through the initial shock. And and, uh, you know, like you don't sit there and go, this is going to be the best thing that ever happened. You go through the oh, my God, I cannot believe this happened. Freak out. What am I going to do? My kid's gone. My my son's saying I'm an only son. I'm an only child. now. I mean, all that we went through all the freak out. Once we got that out of our systems, I literally stood there and went. He's going to be 110 percent. And that is all I'm going to focus on is how to get him there. You know, in life, you've got to ask the right questions. Right. So I think people are listening and they're like, how do you both fully focus on that 0.25%? And obviously that was just a number that was thrown out there, but that slim chance of him getting better, but also fully, you know, embrace reality and be present to what's there. And that's part of like this idea of what it means to have a miracle mindset. 
you know, what would you, for anybody listening, like, and they're, they're listening to your story, what would you share to them? Like, how do you honor both of those dualities equally, but yet keep your focus on what's possible? So what if you just create your own reality? And then it all merges. So that's what I really, when I got to that second hospital, first off, I started to see that people were responding to the way that I was thinking about things and articulating them. They thought I was a little crazy because I was in there and, um, of course, I wanted to go to higher dose fish oil, which became a huge argument fight at the hospital when he when he got rid of his feeding tube then it was game on for me because i could do whatever i wanted no one knew what i was doing i had my nutribullet and i was going to town but prior to that um i had essential oils it was one of the first things that i did was bring in essential oils and that's when i first started to see him respond Hmm. essential oils um we were using some sound therapy that someone sent us we were doing progesterone cream because dr anna kabeca um, had gone to Emory and had been there when Dr. Donald Stein was doing the progesterone studies on TBI. So I was like, I, I looked at everything and I went, risk, reward, low risk, high reward, let's do this. Let's you know, it. That's how I was doing things. And I was telling the doctors when necessary. And since all my friends were there who were doctors, I was kind of going more with you know what they were doing because the argument we had about fish oil with the IRB at the hospital was ridiculous. Mm. It was I had all the research that I'd gotten from Dr. Michael Lewis and Dr. Barry Sears. I'm like going, I have it all sitting right here showing you guys what is real, and they still wouldn't wouldn't pass it through. So. That's when I did which it. Is, which is one of the themes. I mean, we'll continue to go through the story, but one of the core themes in this is that you had to fight for your son. I think that's a really important, important like I see a, a really cool role, maybe for health coaches, to become patient advocates. Mm. Because what is so key important in the hospital, and you know, when you look at it, it's I think what the third leading cause of death is death by doctor. And it's not like, you know, it's medical mistakes. And hey, this is a teaching hospital. By the time Grant left Harbor UCLA, which was an amazing hospital, like if you get hit by a car, go there. Incredible. But he had binders and binders of information. Who could come in? And assimilate all that and know exactly what to do. I mean, come on. That's They're crazy. doing the best they can, but it's They're information doing... overload. Yeah. And I mean, the, the first night, one guy, one doctor who was supposed to have been off when Grant came in just stayed 24 hours to make sure to monitor every single thing and make sure he pulled through. Like, this is what they did. But I mean, when that happens, I don't know how you are after 24 hours, but I'm not at my sharpest, right? So, I mean, you have to have an advocate there. I was there every morning when they did their grand rounds. I think they started doing them earlier and earlier to see if they could avoid me, but I was there (laughs) keeping track. But I also knew that I had a son who'd been on psych meds prior to the accident, and I didn't know who was going to wake up and what we were going to need to do. And so that was going to require... Would he be there? I want to make sure that when he was... like, We were doing everything we could to help him wake up and to wake up his senses. Now, I thought... That like in those movies, I think the movie While You Were Sleeping, you know, when you're in a coma and you wake up and you wake up out of the coma and you look at the person, you say hi. So I literally thought Grant would wake up, look at me and say, I love you, mom. Like I I did. I didn't really realize what what would really happen, which was he didn't just automatically wake up. He they got him off the ventilator. First, they were going to trach him. And we were like, no, no, no. You know, so he got off the ventilator. He started to flutter his eyes. This was after two and a half weeks. 
And then he went from, you know, ventilator and eyes closed to eyes open, staring off into space and moving his one arm that because everything was in a cast except one arm, moving that back and forth all day long. And I thought, oh. Oh my gosh! Like you know, because you don't know what's next, right? So what I decided it, to do was he moving it back and forth in a way to communicate? Were you not sure? No, no, just he was, was like this. Here's here's what he did. So he's looking up to the side, just moving like this all yeah. day, and he literally had the other arm was in a cast. His two legs were casted because he'd had his um, femurs rotted, and he was staring and moving one arm back and forth all day long, staring off into space. So I started. I was like, what can I do? Mm. I started. I brought in popsicles. And I started putting like cold around his lips and the taste of that. And then I was doing the essential oils and then I was doing massage and I brought in music. I thought, I'm just going to get all his senses woken up. And then he started to track me, like his eyes started to track me. And his blood pressure would start to come down when I came in the room. Mm. So I knew he was aware and waking up and we just noticed more and more and more. And I had this one doctor, Dr. Ann Myers, who would come and she brought the essential oils. She works at Cedars Brain Unit. So she brought the essential oils in early, but she would come in and tell me all along the way, this looks great. He looks fantastic. He's making great progress because I'm like, he is, <laughs> you know, but you get to celebrate. Like you start to look and go, every little move was like a big win. You know, it's like when you're, when you've got a little, a little baby, and you're like, they wiggled their toes. It's the same thing. Right. He doesn't go from zero baby. to being himself no. again. It's all these little things because his neurons are, I don't know if this is the correct way. How is it explained to you? Is it that the, the neurons in the brain and just through the trauma, they're sort of like remapping? Um, you know, part of it I was told and I've seen like Dr. Amon came in early and then we've done a couple spec scans since. And some of it, they just said, he's never going to have blood flow to this area again. I go, I refuse to believe that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm like, Daniel, I can't believe you'd say that to me. Like, I refuse to believe that. Anything you tell me that we'll ne- he'll never be able to do again, I'm immediately going to go and fight to get him to do. Right. Like anything. They told us, um, what's crazy is 13 fractures. Um, you know, at first they were like, he's never going to be able to walk again. He's got a crushed heel injury. I go, pretend he's like, you know, some amazing um, basketball star. Right. Like, I'm sure that you wouldn't be telling that guy that he's got a crushed heel and won't walk again. Um, but it's amazing what he's been able to do. But the one thing he had was this loss of hearing. They said full loss of hearing in his left ear. He'll never hear again. And he came out of that. And this was like, I don't know, six or eight months after everything. And he was home after six months. And he goes, I'm going to hear I mean, he just adopted that whole thing that we all had was like, oh, no, now I'm in, now I'm definitely going to hear. And he actually has hearing in that ear now. He still uses a hearing aid and turns us off when he wants to. But um, he can definitely hear in that ear, which is pretty cool. So I think that we have to be super careful. Number one, you always want to have an advocate. You've got to have someone looking out for you and fighting for you. I'm fighting for, like, I had a big sign up. This is going to sound ridiculous, but I had a big sign up in the hospital. It said, no insure, no crystal light. Uh, to like, make sure that they weren't <laughs> feeding him foods that we know are pro-inflammatory right? and would slow down the recovery process. And neurotoxic. Process. I mean, you've got you've got a brain where you've got to get your cells healing, and now you're going to give it neurotoxins and, inf- and and neuroinflammatory foods. You know, no way. So I had big signs up. We didn't have any of that. I was bringing in food from Whole Foods. I had a Nutribullet there. I was making shakes. But you know, you have to have an advocate there to fight for everything that you're doing. 
It's super duper important. Must be. And then also, because you hear this all the time, that a doctor says, oh, you've got three months to live and the person dies at, you know, three months. Right. I go, how about if we stay open to possibilities? Not give someone false hope, but what's wrong with giving someone hope? Because if that inspires your action to actually move forward and to try the things, we don't know if they're going to work or not. I mean, you tried so many different things. Yeah. And you didn't know what was going to work. You didn't know if anything was going to work. But you, what was the other option? What was the alternative? Yeah, not trying. I don't think so. When we had him at, at Children's Hospital LA, they had a swimming pool there and they just said, oh, but he's not ready. But we got to take him out for a couple hours. So we took him over to the condo I was staying at, put him in the pool, took a video of him doing beautifully coordinated strokes. And I'm like, oh, I go, we know. And I would take him into the gym there and, and they'd and they get mad at me because I was like, I had him doing push-ups and I had him doing all this stuff. And I go, he can do this. Trust me. He wants to be challenged. And I found that he got depressed when he felt like he couldn't do things and he felt like he wasn't being challenged. And I think that's pretty much all of us, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to talk about some of the things you did because you've mentioned a few. You talked about uh, like high dose fish oil and I'm guessing other supplements that you were giving. Oh, the yeah. Time. Yeah. I had a whole, I had, I had the nurses were coming in going, show us what you're doing now. Right. You know, there's new information now. I'd still say like if I had to pick one thing, it would be fish oil. Back then we didn't have CBD. We got CBD about a year into this. So he started on CBD. Now I'd put him on an auto. I have him on an auto tocotrienols now to stabilize his lipid membrane so that when he is doing this higher dose fish oil, it's not oxidizing, right? Because that's a problem super important and I was able to control this once we got the feeding tube out is to put them on a keto diet so because you know one of the challenges when you have a traumatic brain injury is getting the nutrients the energy to the brain and the brain needs ketones the brain can't use glucose that's the problem when you've got a traumatic brain You're injury. You're saying that the brain can't get better on insure and the glucose inside of there? I know it's shocking. It's so shocking. <laughs> and I remember having this argument with the hospital because they're like, well, what will he drink? And I go, water. I think it's it'll be fine, you know? <laughs> so, and then I gave him, he was very, very catabolic for a while. And I was, that was my biggest fear is that he was losing so much weight. So I was doing bone broth and I was doing heavy amino acid therapy, like everything I could do to help him not get, lose all his muscle. Now, let me ask you a question. Prior to his accident, I mean, you've been in the fitness and the wellness industry for such a long time. How open was he to these dietary and lifestyle uh, suggestions uh, prior to his accident? (laughs) And did you get any resistance during that process uh, after his accident? So he had to deal with me growing up because, of course, when early on I knew something was up with him with his behavior. So I started working, like I started running all these tests and doing everything. I took him off of gluten. I took him off of dairy, which really made him unhappy with me early on. I pulled the sugar out of his diet. I mean, you could clearly see if he had sugar or if he went and had a pizza, the challenges. Same with my other son. My other son, if you give him a pizza, he gets a migraine. And I'd say, can you see the correlation? Oh, no, mom. Now he does. Right. So... (laughs) Grant had already been taking supplements because of the bipolar disorder. I had him on a whole supplement regimen that Dr. Amen and I had cooked up. He was on a very specific diet, and we did not have sugar in his diet. So he was already used to me, you know. Um, I think growing up, both, both Bryce and Grant were like, mom's a little crazy, right? Now, both of them are absolutely 100% on board. 
in fact, Bryce does recipes for for my business, writes them for us. And Grant, like, he'll tell me all his recipes that he's doing. And he, he eats a lot of plants, really clean and healthy. So there, And he has correlated because he went off the rails a bit and was doing some gluten. And he goes, I eat gluten, I get mad, which I think is so powerful. Like, the single coolest thing you can do is connect the dots between what you're eating and how you feel. That's it. Right? I mean, and it's so clear and obvious but but yet you have all of these diets where they have you counting things and rather than just connecting those dots that are so empowering because most people have so many things that are mixed together they often don't know how foods make them feel so going through the process of an elimination diet or the jj the virgin diet and actually getting clear on that helps us understand that wow these foods actually have an impact on our health yes so it was great in the hospital because i could totally control it once once i took control and i mean literally i think my my ex-husband is the sweetest, kindest human being. And I think they were like, could you send him back now? Because, you know, <laughs> I would get in there and be like, do not feed him these things. I had signs up. I was like, you know, because you have to be very firm. Otherwise, he's getting pancakes and syrup. I think anybody that's been a caretaker, you know, there's this whole, uh, there's so many people that are listening to this podcast that are caretakers of, could be a parent, could be a, a, another family member, could be a grandparent. And... Many people who have been in the caretaker position um, know just how hard it is to go up against the system. And it brings up a lot of things inside of them of, is it okay to fight for this person? Is it okay to fight for this family member, this person that I care of? Because shouldn't I listen to the experts? Shouldn't I listen to the people around them? And a big part of what you're saying is there's, there's got to be, well, first it's education, right? You had all the education, both from your mm-hmm. own journey, but also from the people that were part of your team. The doctors like Daniel Amen and other individuals that were part of your team and telling you like, no, there's actually research behind this. There's research behind that. And then almost like giving yourself permission to push back. And if people don't like you because that, it's almost like it's none of your business. Yeah. Well, that's never bothered me. So fortunately, that part, you know, that part didn't bother me. And I did have like literally Daniel Amen, Dr. Hyla Cass, like all these people who were there. And the hospital, after a little bit, just kind of went along with, they were like, all right. They went with the know, momentum. They were just like, okay, all right, fine. In fact, then the nurses started taking notes is what I was doing because they wanted to do it with their, their family members and other patients. And when I moved to Children's Hospital LA, actually, they were completely on board. So it was very different. They were much more, because it's a different type of hospital. Like Harbor UCLA is a trauma unit. Sure. Children's Hospital is a rehab center. So they were much more, I mean, they had sushi in their, in their cafeteria. So they were much more on board with this type of stuff. However, they did want to have Grant have crystal light. I was like, not happening. <laughs> you also did some additional therapies, things that are becoming a little bit more mainstream now, and at least understanding and awareness of them is mainstream. But back then, this is all completely new. Uh, let's talk about a couple of these and how you incorporate them in hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Yeah, I don't understand how this is not just a regular, like, a thing. Um, So uh, hyperbaric, like, the minute we got out of the hospitals, because we couldn't do most of this stuff in the hospital. We actually tried to do acupuncture in the hospital, and we couldn't. We had to do acupressure. And the person who came in and helped me with this when they were like, what are you doing? Oh, just holding hands. You know, I was like, (laughs) Um, But hyperbaric, the minute we got out, we started doing that three days a week for him to help with brain healing. Now, here's what I will tell you about all this stuff is I did everything that I could find out that had a good chance of reward and a low risk. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I got out of the hospital, started hyperbaric, and one of my friends um, is one of the pioneers in stem cell work. Very awesome. So when he got out, now when Grant got out, it was not legal at the time to put stem cells into your spine. Right. The FDA considered it a drug. Yeah, it was like illegal. And also at the time you couldn't grow them. So at first, all he did was draw them, spin them, and then give them IVs. And the challenge with all of this stuff is he was in such a state of healing that you're like, okay, which one was it? But I think the important takeaway with this is you want, you don't pick one healing modality. Like, like if someone wants to be healthy, you can't just say, you know what? I really want to be healthy. So I'm going to eat more vegetables and that's it. I'm going to stay up all night. I'm going to smoke, but I'll eat more vegetables. No, if you want to be healthy, you have to sleep better. You have to do something to manage your stress. You need to exercise. You need to eat quality food. You need to have quality relationships, right? It's, it's a lot of different modalities. Same thing with healing. So obviously diet to me and supplementation were ground zero. That's they were foundational. Like, yeah, and, and that was the easiest thing for me to start controlling was that. And then movement, we had him working with an amazing trainer because we knew, number one, coordination was huge. One of the first things we did was buy a ping pong table because Daniel Lehman was like, get him on ping pong. I'm like, all right. But we had him working, doing a lot of exercise. Plus, we know that raises BDNF and we can start to really like not just – um, rebuild, but get new brain cells. So exercise is huge and increases blood flow to the brain too. Then we added hyperbaric. Um, then we were able to do that first round of stem cells and I didn't notice anything. And here's what's interesting with it. But, but again, we were throwing all this stuff, right? And you were layering. It seems like you were building a foundation, getting structured in that, noticing some progress, then adding another layer to it. It wasn't like you just started yeah. with hyperbaric right away. I mean, that wouldn't have been possible. Well, we wouldn't too. even have been able. Yeah. And, and the thing is, Grant also would get a little irritated with me, like enough mom, you know, so literally it was diet, exercise. Um, and then and we, we were able to get his, draw his, we did it actually from his fat. So we got his fat, we got the stem cells, we sent them to a lab, we had them grown so we could expand them, brought them back and did an IV of stem cells in straight and then and then an injection straight into his spine. So we went in, MRI guided into his spine, and this was crazy what happened. And thankfully, uh, I called Dr. Carrie Dealis mm-hmm. because hey, she was clinic. the only one who could tell me this because I sent an email out to everybody and I went, I did stem cells into Grant's spine in 72 hours. He's absolutely psychotic. Now, when he was in the hospital, we had to have him in a zip-up posy bed, and we had to have this cocktail, this tranquilizer cocktail, because as his brain would heal, you know, one of the challenges when your brain heals is that you lose, you know, that filter that says, hey, don't hit someone. Hey, you know, everyone's not an enemy. It's like your lizard brain comes online first and says, enemies, you know? So you lose that ability, and Grant was very scary and violent. As his brain was healing, we had to do this this balancing game between giving him a little bit of something to take the edge off, but not so much his brain wouldn't heal. But he was home. We'd pretty much gotten through a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it. And then we did the stem cell therapy into his spine. And 72 hours later, we had to hospitalize him because he was off the rails. And I looked at this and I went, this must be good. Now, I know that sounds crazy. 
but I thought his brain's healing because his brain's healing and more of it's coming online. And the first thing that always happens as his brain heals is he would get a little bit crazy. You had seen that pattern before. Uh-huh. So I thought, and so I sent this email out and everybody was like, I don't know, man. I, Cause it's like, it's brand new. Carrie's like, who's a, who's a spine surgeon. Yes. She says, I am seeing that after 72 hours. It was 72 hours. I remember it. She goes, that's when I see it. I'm seeing people's limbs waking up and they're starting to scream from the pain. And I go, I knew it. I knew it. Right. Mm. So at that, I mean, once he settled back down, I was like, this is fantastic. Because uh, there's a, there's a center here in LA, uh, Dr. Shonak Patel, Shonak Patel, who does stem cells and often says like when stem cells are brought in, their body can go through a little bit of an inflammatory, there's an inflammatory response Mm -hmm. because it's rebuilding. So is that the connection that they were making? I think it was just waking some things up because what has happened as his brains come more online is that he goes through kind of a little process where it's, he first goes through kind of this fear, um, you know, are people trying to attack me? What's going on? Negative memories before he kind of integrates everything and then he's okay. So we did that three times and each time he had that response, but it wasn't as bad and we were ready. (laughs) Like this time we were ready. You know, the first time it was like out of the blue. And then we did a different type of laser where they just drew your blood and they laser activated it and then laser guided it. And we did that twice and he saw a difference in 30 minutes. He went, wow. it, it changed his balance. Do you remember what that was called? Um, it was in San Diego and what is it? It's Dr. Todd Ovaletsky and Dr. Hyla Cass brought him to me at one of my parties. She's like, meet Dr. Todd. I'm like, all right, tell me what you do, Dr. Todd. And he explained the whole thing to me. And I'm like, let's give this one a go. Right. Again, um, looking at that like, model of... <laughs> High possibility of reward, low risk. Yeah. I'm like, well, what's the risk of this? They're taking your, it's basically like PRP, but they're, and he actually showed me all the studies they'd done. A lot of this is out, is in Russia where they could show these stem cells lining up. And I'm like, all right, let's try it. But for Grant, and here I have Grant who is not um, suggestible. Like sometimes I wish he was suggestible because then I'd say, hey, this is what this is going to do for you. This will be awesome. But he's not. So I couldn't tell him, hey, this is going to be amazing. This is what it will do because it's not going to matter one way or the other. It's going to, he is going to have the the response that he's going to have regardless of what I say. So he goes and has this and he's like, I mean, they came over to the house right afterwards and I went, this is amazing. Like if you spoke to him now, his vocabulary is incredible. He still keeps talking about, I need to heal my brain more because he'll notice some things with memory, but his vocabulary is insane. He reads all the time. So we did that. We also, we've done speech therapy for years. And I think it's more because he just has a really good bond with the speech therapist. But we also did neurofeedback, right? Um, which was great because the neurofeedback combined with the stem cell therapy, we could, and we also did hyperbaric after stem cells because that helps. Um, but we could actually see the difference in the st- what the stem cell therapy was doing through the neurofeedback. Now, before you've already given us a little bit of a preview of his, of where he is now, but before we talk about that, because this goes back into the idea of your, of your book and everything that you talk about with the miracle mindset and warrior mom, trace your sort of personal mindset during this. Was there any trauma that you had? Was the, you know, how was your, where were you at just overall as this journey? And I'm sure it was up and down all the time. 
was a lot more up than down. Um, and here's why. I was super lucky when I was 30 years old. I had a mentor. It's funny. I wrote the book and I, and people kept telling me, how did I know how to do this? I'm like, I don't know. It's just in me. I forgot that I lived with this woman for six months. I was, she was going to be my business coach, this mentor, this mentor. And for th- six months, she taught me mindset. She goes, you're not, it was like Mr. Miyagi, you know, you're not ready. You have to learn these things. And she just literally did mindset training with me for six months. I had to wear a little rubber band on my wrist. Anytime I thought a negative or limiting belief, I had to snap the, my wrist. I had to manage my environment. I couldn't read the news, no negativity. Um, I was listening this will date this, but I was had a little um, Walkman. You probably don't know what that is. I do. I it's do. this thing that you put tapes in. You probably don't know what those are either. So cassette tapes in the Walkman of Zig Ziglar and Brian Tracy. And all, and all I did was fill myself with positivity. I Anyone around me, I could only hang out with positive people. Like it just became who I was. She took, you know, there are no victims, only volunteers. You have to make your own reality, choose how you think, it, everything. Right. So this was just how I became. You woke up in the morning in gratitude. You wrote down three things you were grateful for. You ended the day with what you appreciated about the day. You wrote down three wins. So, I mean, I just got used to doing this. And thankfully, I had this in me before this hit, because I think the challenge is people go through tough times and then they think, okay, I need to start a meditation practice. I'm like, well, not really. You needed to have the meditation practice before this stuff hit, because when you really look at life, The one thing that we know for sure, no question, is that stuff's going to happen. Challenges are going to (laughs) be They are going to happen. And when I was writing this book, Grant was suicidal not one time, multiple times. He swallowed a handful of pills. He hit his head again. He tried to go walk out in traffic. He was like over and over and over, so much so that as I was writing this book, I had no idea if he was going to be around when the book got published. And I realized this is not a book about how you help your son survive brain injury. This is a book about how you show up when stuff gets hard, because I know in life it's going to get hard. And that's the differentiator. And when you really look at people who are successful, and to me, successful means you have great relationships and you're making a difference in the world, especially with your kids, things that matter the most. Those people are the people who can show up under the toughest situations and not give you some excuse. Oh, I know I was, I was mean, but I was stressed. Mm. Right. It's people who have the resiliency to show up for however the situation. Yeah. Demands them and you to. can train that. And that's what's super cool. And I didn't realize that at 30, I had trained for it. And then, you know, I got all sorts of opportunities to practice it along the way. Right. And so, <laughs> yes, was it hard in the hospital? It was super challenging. And I sent an SOS out that first night. I asked for help. People came in droves. I mean, Tana and Daniel Amen came to the hospital with all this homemade food. Dr. Hyla Cass came every week with homemade kale, chicken soup, with bone broth. I mean, it, people showed up. It was unbelievable to me. It made me want to be a better person. I was like, would I be doing this? I want to be this person too. And I asked for help. I surrounded myself with that. I managed my mindset. I would freak out occasionally and I'd call people like I'm freaking out. And Friday nights in the hospital were the worst of the worst. And someone would always show up because that's when I would tend to, if you're going to have a pity party, it's Friday night in the hospital. Like, you know, when your son's in a coma, staring off into space, moving an arm, easy time to have a pity party. Which which goes to this idea 
which any caregiver again, or anybody that's supporting somebody or just even in life, whether you're dealing with a traumatic brain injury or not, you said that the most selfless thing you can do as a caregiver, or just, I think as a human being Mm -hmm. is to take care of yourself. And the most selfish thing you can do is to not take care of yourself. Expand on that. Yeah, and I'll use my cousin as an example because she'll never hear this. Um, <laughs> I don't know. The podcast is going. <laughs> my cousin and my – no, she'll never hear this because she won't take care of her health, mm. you see? Because people who are listening to this are proactive. Mm. They care about their health. So my mom called all upset about my cousin because my cousin had such bad thyroid disease because she hadn't been to a doctor in meh, 15, 20 years that she first, – first sign of her thyroid disease was falling down at age – 55 and breaking her hips. So I looked at that and my mom was like, oh, poor cousin so-and-so. I'll say that. And I'm like, that's selfish. I go, she's a mom. What was she doing? Never going to the doctor, not taking care of herself, right? Now, now our kids are going to have to deal with this. Now, someone hearing this might be thinking harsh, but I think we have a responsibility. First of all, I know that if I want my kids to be healthy, I better show up healthy. I can't be sitting there smoking, eating donuts and think my kids are going to eat healthy and not smoke. That's crazy, right? So the first thing is if if you are not motivated enough to do things to be healthy for yourself, do it for your kids, do it for your family, do it for everybody around you. But I also knew in the hospital as I surveyed the situation of here's my son, he's in a coma in the pediatric ICU where you have to walk in with a glove, masks and a gown. And if you have a sniffle, you don't go in. And I have a book coming out, which if the book doesn't go, I'm bankrupt. And then I will not be able to do all these other things that I was going to do to get them to be 110%. So now I'm highly motivated to make sure the book goes, but I'm not going to leave my son there. And I've got my other son too. So I look at that and I go, I cannot get sick. And I have to make life and death decisions. I have to be able to think super clearly. I'm putting it like, there is no margin for error. I already walked into this situation healthy but I'm going to make sure that I stay that way. Literally, Whole Foods was delivering me food. They heard the story and they were delivering me food. I was working out. I found a gym close by. I ran up and down the hospital stairs. Hyla Cass brought me a bag full of supplements for stress. Here you go. You know, So I did every. I got my sleep every single night, eight to nine hours of sleep every single night. But I'll tell you what, Drew, and this was something that, that I thought about then because here I was coming out with a diet book. And what happens with diet books, people read a diet book and you know when they start the diet? When? Tomorrow (laughs) and tomorrow and tomorrow. And right. And I'm so used to people saying, this is great. I'll do this tomorrow. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, what if I'd walked into this situation and I wasn't super healthy? I mean, to be able to handle that level of stress, what if I didn't have a stress practice in place? What if I wasn't already exercising? What if I hadn't made sleep a priority? What if I wasn't taking my supplements? What if, you know, I was already on the brink of breaking and this happened to push me over the edge? So I look at it and go, if we want to show up in life and, and live our legacy, not leave it, live it and be the best parent, like you must really put your health first. It's like you put your health first so that you can give love and attention to everything else that truly matters. Mm -hmm. Well, then you'll be able to do more of that. See, I think there's some idea that if you put your health first, it's selfish because you'll have less time for everything else. And the reality is, as we all know, right, is when you're healthy, you have more to give. Like, I don't know about you, but when I have a crappy night's sleep and I don't feel well, I do not have more to give. (laughs) 
It's true. And going back to, I think that a lot of people, especially when they deal with a difficult and challenging situation, the first thing that they think is I need to sacrifice myself so that I can give more, give more to work, give more to my partner, give more to other people, but they're doing it at the expense of themselves. And that doesn't play out long term. It doesn't. I've got, I've got another person who, you know, in my life, who's a martyr and, and what ends up happening is other people are having to now support and take care of her. I'm like, whenever you do this, actually, it's, it's having the exact opposite effect when you don't take care of yourself, when you behave like the martyr, step up and be the role model. You know, you hinted at this earlier, but all the while, while being there for your son and your family, you know, you have another son as well. Um, you were going through some very challenging financial times. You had a book that was coming out, your first really big book that came out in 2015, I believe. Yeah, was it 2000? No, it came out. It came out 2012. It came 2012. out right. It came out a month after all this. I launched a New York Times bestseller. I have the picture of me sitting bedside with a laptop open with my son in a coma, you know, the whole thing sitting wow. there. That's when I launched it. Amazing. They had a little interview room for me at Harbor UCLA where I could go in and do my interviews because they all knew what was going on. And what and were you thinking at the time like, wow, all this all at the same time? Or again, the training that you had when you were 30 was so ingrained into you and you had been practicing it. Like how, how do other people who have not had the benefit of having that mentor at 30, what's the step right now to begin to build up that level of resilience and understanding where the background narrative is not distracting them from what they have to do? If this book wasn't a success, as you shared earlier, you would have been bankrupt. Yeah, I know. So I looked at the whole thing and thought, game on, honestly, because I knew and I looked at everything and I went, all right, what can I get rid of? All I need to focus on is my son, my other son, and this book. And that's when I went and what what I need to do that is to be uber healthy, and everything else is gone. It's a distraction, right? That was it. Um, but I think, you know, the most important thing we can do is reframe the way we look at situations and the best way to reframe the way you look at a situation that mentor used to never let any of us come to her with a problem, no problems. They were only challenges or opportunities. And you certainly couldn't come to her with one of those before noon. Cause she found most people figured it out before noon and then they would never <laughs> talk to her about it. But one thing she taught me is, is the way you ask the question is going to define the answer. So it's a very different answer when you say, how can I get my son to be 110%? Versus how can my son, how can I help my son survive? I don't, didn't want my son just to survive. I wanted this to be the best thing that ever happened to him and to my other son and to our family and then to as many people through a ripple effect who then could see that they could step up and they could actually tell a doctor they wanted another second opinion. And hey, doctors saved my life, my son's life, and they are, most of my best friends are doctors but they're people, right? And they're going to give you their opinion. And sometimes that might be exactly what you need. And sometimes it's not. So just take that, right? Yeah, you you know, it's important, but you have to fight to create that whole thing. And again, I think it starts with asking the right questions, right? That will then define all of this, define that experience, because you really can create that reality. It can be your best day or your worst day, any day of the week. And a lot of that just comes from your perception, right? 
The questions will help your mind determine what to be on the hunt for. I always say, <clears throat> your brain's like a detective. It's going to go and find the evidence for anything that you choose to believe. And so the questions are setting yourself up. And you talk about this in your book about how to start asking more empowering questions and to just start off there. Mm -hmm. Or maybe even to stop, to catch yourself when you find yourself asking a not empowering question. Yeah, that's where the little rubber band on the wrist. I mean, that's the cool thing. Like in the book, all of these things I talk about that you can do, they don't cost anything. It's just a new way of thinking. And over time, like three to six months, you, you will completely shift. It's like there's a whole different person in there now in the way you're thinking. Like, I just don't think negatively. I never would have looked at this whole thing, even, even when things would pop into my head about, well, what if I had instantly had ways to push that out, right? So if that started, I would then go to how do I get them to be 110%? Because, you know, don't think that I would walk through the day going, this is all sunshine and butterflies. It was scary as hell, like all the time. There were so many but ops, so there many downs. So many, there was, and there were so many ridiculous obstacles. I mean, honestly, if that book hadn't gone, I would have been bankrupt. I found out in the middle of the whole book launch, I'd miscalculated. I was $50,000 short. I didn't have it anywhere. I was like, I remember walking out of the hospital going, gosh, will you just give me a break at some point here? And then, and starting to have a pity party. And then I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. You just helped your son not die. I'm sure that you can find $50,000. This is not a hard thing. And that's the other key important thing is, is as you go through challenges in life, you realize so many of the things that we get all freaked out about, like they don't even appear on my screen anymore. You know, especially if money is your only problem. I mean, once you've suffered anything with health, money, it, it, you can always get money. You can all, that is one of the easier things to do. That is truly a mindset. Yeah. Because if you have your health and you are at the verge of losing it or a family member losing it, especially for a mother, you know, that just 99% of things don't matter. Yeah. Nope. That was the only thing that literally like. You know, only thing that mattered to me was that I would know that I had done everything possible. Because that really brings up the larger question is that when we let the resistance of other people slow us down or no, they have to have insurer, that's the hospital policy <laughs> or they have to have crystal light. And when you don't do what you know to do, you end up living with regret and that will eat you alive for the rest of your life. Oh yeah. And you know what was so interesting is when I stood up and said, this is what I want for my son. This is what we're going to do. They're like, all right. I didn't get, they just stopped doing it. I said, he's not going to be eating these foods. Here's what he's going to be eating. I'm going to be bringing them in. They're like, okay. It was just a you statement know? of fact. You I just said, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. There was no like blame or crazy or anything like that. There wasn't any emotion because it's not. I'm like, he's going to have wild salmon. I'm going to bring it in. They're like, that's amazing. No one's ever done that here before. I go, I really can't believe that. That's that's more amazing. So today, Grant, tell us about him. You know, uh, there's been, it's been so many components that are there. You've said it's not been easy, but number one, he's not only survived, he's thriving, got better than anybody thought that he could get. It's a really a miracle. And, uh, you know, where is he to today and, and what things do you have to continue to put attention on to help protect his brain from having gone through this accident? Well, what's very interesting is intuitively he has gone and done things that he never would have done before. He was a 16-year-old boy with a girlfriend and liked video games. 
I mean, he was like the typical teenage boy. Now he he came home and he started gardening, gardening, like getting in the dirt. So that was something big that I think that we don't think about in health enough is that we need to be in the dirt, Mm. right? We need to get out there. We need to get our feet in the ground. We need to touch the dirt and we need to be in the sunshine. So it was like one of the first things he started to do was get up early, get out in the sun, get his feet in the dirt. Crazy. I like, I was like, where did he even, he just knew instinctively to do that. He started to draw, which has been a great way for him to just kind of get back his connections. He started to read. He's never been a reader. Now he's an obsessive reader and obsessed with vocabulary. Um, and he's also gotten huge into meditating, Hmm. like massively into meditating and studying nutrition. Um, we'll do fasts and, you know, he's always playing around with his diet. I don't have him on a ketogenic diet anymore because he doesn't need to be. And he also started to lower thyroid function. Um, but now he rotates in some fasts and does, um, more of a plant base with a little bit of protein diet. Um, he reads a ton. He's always into different supplements. Um, where his deficits are now, that is my next step to work with him on. We, uh, this was an important learning lesson for me that I think is important for all caregivers. Is I was so focused on getting him to 110% that I was not paying attention to the fact that actually he already was. That the reality is he's better than before the accident. He knows how to manage his mood swings and all of that so much better. He's he's a kind, empathetic, he's such a sweet human being. And so I kept going to the next therapy and what's next? And I've got this grant, we'll do this. And all of a sudden he goes, I am not broken. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, you're right. You're not broken. I'm so sorry. Like, you know, I, I just got so on my path that I forgot that he needs to be on his path. And now it's really his path. So I'll bring him things that I hear about. But really, it's his choice and his decision now. His next thing, and I'll share, I think one of the challenges in um, brain injuries is the complete lack of community and support. He got hit when he was 16. He could never go back to high school. He tried. There was nowhere for him to be. The kids didn't know how to be with him. You know, when you first come out of a brain injury, you talk incessantly. It's it's literally like being a three-year-old again, you know. Why is that, Mommy? Why is that, Mommy? All that kind of stuff. It's like that all over again. And kids just didn't want to be with him. So he lost all of his friends, lost all of those years. So it's almost like he lost from 16 to 21. So we're starting back now. And the biggest next step is more socialization and that kind of stuff. But Because the community is a big part of health, too. Huge. That has, been, that has been the biggest challenge and, and one that I think, um, you know, I see Kevin Pierce and his brother Adam doing really well with, with Love Your Brain and creating their community. But we need a lot more support. And part of that is he's living out in Palm Springs. And so all the people with brain injuries there, he's not going to go hang out with some 80 year old, you know, support group. That's not going to happen. So we're moving him to Tampa too. And that will, I think, help things tremendously. But, you know, he takes, he has a dog, walks his dog, great communicator. You wouldn't really know if you met him that there was anything going on until he starts to tell you about it. And then he, you know, because when he starts to tell you stories about literally the near death experiences and stuff, it's pretty fascinating. Which is a miracle. And for anybody listening, there's been so many great takeaways for anybody that's been through a, a traumatic brain injury or even just, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of traumatic brain injuries. So even if it's on the lighter side, there's things that you can take away. Um, and for anybody that, that hasn't 
And there's these foundational things that you had been doing before. We've talked about a few of them, but I just want to revisit them for anybody who's listening and is just fascinated by this entire story and their heart goes out to you and your entire family. And they're just the beginning part of their journey. How do they get started to bring in these things, knowing that life will throw them challenges one day in the future? If somebody had to start today to build the foundational elements of health for themselves in all aspects of life, whether they suffer from a traumatic brain injury or not in the future, how do you get people started? I'm sure people come to you all the time mm -hmm. and they say, JJ, how do I get started? You know, it was interesting. When I wrote this book, the publishers were like, you're writing a book on mindset and you're a health person and I don't understand. And I'm like, um, mindset is the key single most important thing that you can have if you, when you, you know, to be healthy. And I did a study of my community a couple of years ago. I interviewed them and I said, all right, if you're not where you want to be, if you're not like where you want to be in terms of your weight or your health, why not? And I thought it would be like, well, I can't give up the sugar. I can't stop the gluten. And the number one reason I was given by all of these respondents, and we gave them as much space as they wanted to write, I don't feel good enough. I don't feel worthy. And so the first decision really, like the first place to go is the why of all of this. You know, I'm working on this idea in terms of getting healthy that we must always start with that why. And the why shifts over time. I mean, when you become a parent, the why probably becomes a lot about your kids. But you first start about your whys, like what and, and, you know, look at where you are and where you want to be in your health and that what is going to happen when you're there. Right. And then we've got to realize that this is a process. I really love um, the book, The One Thing. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to By, apply uh, that Gary to... Gary Keller. Yes, I'm yeah. so obsessed with him. I think we need to apply that to everything in our life, that one of the challenges I see when people decide they get health, they want to get healthy is they go, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to go on a paleo diet and I'm going to start eating a lot more vegetables. I'm going to cut out all the sugar. I'm going to drink more water. I'm going to start getting sleep and I'm going to do, I've got to meditate. I'm going to work out every single and day. Gonna, right. And hours. all of a sudden, like they wake up the next day, they go hell with all that. So instead of that, if you really look at it, because everything in life really is habits when you come down to it. So what if all you did at first was focus on the quality of your food? Like if all we did was focus on the quality of our food and say I'm not eating any processed grains and sugar and I just got rid of that stuff. Then I figured out which foods work for me and which foods didn't intolerance. Then I figured out how many carbs should I really be eating? Sugar impact diet. Then I went, all right, I'm going to start moving more, just walking and track it. Then I'm going to start doing some high intensity interval training. Then I'll add in some resistance training and some flexibility. Now I'm going to do some mindful stuff. Find your bliss, whether it's meditation or um tapping or whatever and then make sure you're sleeping well like we want to go over and get like what do we what you know which supplements and what hormones and which way can i hack this and i go are you eating your vegetables because if you're not eating your vegetables and drinking water and having a great relationship you know no supplement over here is going to fix that so let's start with you're buying a car and don't just worry about the what the rims are going to look like. Worry about the engine first, right? Absolutely. And sleep to that list too. I know you're a huge, yeah, sleep. huge fan. <laughs> That's of, probably the first most important one right. of all is sleep. In fact, sleep and high quality sleep and giving your body the fuel that it, uh, that it needs. Um, what are the things that JJ does today to support her mindset? You know, there's so many components that you've worked on over the years, but today... Because so much of what continues to have us feel good is continuing to invest those things. What is the things that JJ does today to support her mindset? I completely binge on friends. 
I have like created the most, I've kind of created my own family and I'm an adopted kid. So I feel like you get to do what you want to do once, you know, it's like it's now a free for all, right? I can create my own family. So I have the most amazing community of friends who I've just basically adopted. I have a lot of events and parties with all of them. I have amazing husband and great kids and great ex-husband. I told my now husband, I go, so we're going to be like hanging out a lot with my ex-husband. He'll be there for holidays. He's like, fine. You know, so we're all very close. And I would say of anything that I do now, that's probably the number one thing that I do. I think that, you know, right up there with sleep, one of the key most significant things you can do for your health is have an amazing group of friends and family. Because whatever their behaviors are, we know through the science of the Framingham study and so many other studies that are out there that we will model their behaviors. Yeah, Jim Rohn said it, what was it, like 40, 50 years ago in terms of of income. He said, well, you know, your income's the average of the five people you hang out the most with. And it's like, well, if it's income, what else would it be? And and when people ask me, all right, I've lost the weight, I'm fitter. How do I make sure I maintain those results? And I go, you just find fitter friends. Yeah. And uh, we have a mutual friend, Lewis Howes. He always says, if you don't know where to start, go to where people grow. Where are people growing around you? Where are people learning to be better? Even in your small town, there's probably a dance class that people are going to. You're going to find some people that are investing themselves at all different age groups. Go to where people grow, and that's how you can start finding a new community. And sometimes it also means firing the friends that are oh, not yeah. there that are serving you in that way, not to sound it, not that they're not serving you anymore, but sometimes there are people that are so hurt or see you only in a particular light that they can't get past that narrative and story, and so they bring you down. What's your advice for anybody that's in that situation right now? If they're trying to create their community and they have those one or two friends that are there. I have fired all those friends. Um, so I think what you do is you have a heart to heart about where you're going and what you see, and they either decide they're going to come on board with you and grow with you, or they're going to go. And it doesn't mean that you, you know, banish them from the kingdom, they're off the planet, but there aren't someone that's in your inner circle. And I will tell you that when my son got hit, my own mother, I didn't, she didn't come out right away because she tends to see everything. She's very doom and gloom. She was like, oh my gosh, oh, this will never work. So I had to be very careful in managing that, right? Which is maybe like her own protection mechanism. That's her own. own it's, it's like, you know, she's doing the best she can and she always worries about me. That's right. her thing. That's the way she shows love is to worry. Mm -hmm. But boy, when you're trying to stay positive, that worry, that was like, that, that that. not what I need to be around. So, I mean, for all these people, you've got to look and meet them where they are, but it may be that they're not going to be in your inner circle. And that's... That's totally fine because, you know, the more you step into that place of growth and positivity, you'll actually probably, they probably won't want to be around you anyway. They'll ditch you. There, that's the easy solution. Get them to <laughs> ditch <changed>. you. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh, this happened. So my husband, his old friends from college all said, you've changed. Mm-hmm. Because all of a sudden, he's doing all this personal development work. He's actually joined Bo Eason's mastermind. He's stepping up. It's, it's just amazing. Like, you've changed. Yeah. You know, because they're all, you know. I hope that we all change. I know. I was like, right on, honey. That's fantastic. And anyone who doesn't support you into being your best self is not a friend. They're not. JJ, thank you for coming on the Broken Brain Podcast and really giving that same hope that you gave to your son, which is the whole reason that we have this podcast, which is that... Our brains are not broken. 
we can get better. We can feel our best. We can have the right mindset. You have some incredible projects that are out there that I'd love to just cover for the people that listen. We have practitioners who listen, moms, dads, everybody in between, and you're doing so many incredible things. You are an incredible business owner and you've built a lot of different brands. Uh, just give us a rundown of a couple of different stuff that you do. You do a lot of education for people that are game changers, especially in the wellness world, who want to be, who want to level up and you have a yearly event. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So here's, here's the through line for all of yes, it. Yes, let's do it. Because it all has to have a neat little bow on it, please, right? Please, please. Um, early on, I was a personal trainer, me, Mark Sisson, and Body by Jake. Us three were the first ones. And I wanted to, I was like, loved helping people. And then I went, but I'm one-on-one. I'm like, not getting anywhere. And I thought, how do I help a million people get healthy? Note the question. Next thing you know, I'm on Dr. Phil for two years. I was like, all right, check that off the list, right? And then the question is, well, how do I help a billion? How do I help a billion? That the way I help a billion is to help other health experts and doctors do what I did. Like, you know, all these different ways of learning New York Times bestsellers or PBS, just teach them, share the ideas, right? And that's where Mindshare came from was I went, I want to have people around me, peers, I can collaborate, we can share, we'll be better together. We were in a field where a lot of people think that we compete. But what I've always explained to them is, A, people don't buy one diet book, they collect. And in fact, the people who are the closest in my line of thinking, like Mark, so, you know, I do anything with Dr. Mark Hyman and people are like, oh, oh my gosh, they love him. Right. And and they'll they'll get all of his books and programs. Is that taking away from me? No, it's actually building building me because a they love seeing us together. It elevates me, too. And they don't just buy his book. They'll buy my book, too. So that's what I started to teach people is if we we all can rise up together, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats, we all can share ideas, and it's not going to take away from you. And that's what Mindshare became. And it started with a couple of us meeting at lunch at one of a, my uh, then coach Brendan Burchard's events. And then all of a sudden, we had a line down the hall at this at there, there was no more room to have lunches there. And so I had an event with 60 people. So it started with 12, then lunch for 30, then 60 person event. It's now a 500 plus person event, complete with a gala with an award ceremony and a costume party and a pool party. So be ready. And what's interesting about it is um, everyone comes knowing they're going to share. We do awards for being the best go giver, the best innovator. Um, Mark won an award last year. I'm trying to remember which one it was um, when he came and did the whole thing with Congressman Tim Ryan. Right. So it really is, we've created this culture of collaboration and support. We've created all these docuseries and summits and all sorts of stuff out of that group. And I think I probably hit the billion people. I think we can probably expand it up from there. And the people that I know that have been a part of it, lifelong friendships. Lifelong. And people, you know what? Nothing makes me more happy than seeing people who I introduced that are now hanging out together, doing amazing things together. Like Mindshare, it wasn't actually formally a group yet. I didn't name it for years. We had this whole thing going. We had no website, no name, no nothing. Um, And the first real formal event was the January after Grant got hit. But I really, it was that community who saved Grant's life, Mm. right? And I see it happening over and over and over again in the community. Someone will say, this happened to so-and-so. What can we do? And it's just, it's amazing the power of an incredible tribe. So true. 
So that's Mindshare. That's Mindshare. So um, I'm doing a similar type of thing now with women entrepreneurs. So Mindshare right now is in a big growth curve because I really want to be able to help more of the doctors who are in their clinics but know that they have a bigger message they want to get out into the world and really teach them how to do that through books and TED Talks and podcasts, et cetera, so really help them build their brand. So we're going to the next level there because prior to that, Mindshare has been this very uh, – um, kind of, I was going to say, kind of elite. Exclusive club. Exclusive club of people who were on TV and had websites and books and TED Talks, et cetera, were all the ones who were there. And now I, I really want to, you know, you don't change the world by indoctrinating the indoctrinated. You change the world by helping everybody and um, those who want to be helped. So that's where I really want to help. I think so many people get into the health field because they have this vision of really being able to make a big impact in the world. And that's what I want to help them be able to do. So once we get once we get that one in the next three to five years really launched with this bigger event, then I will start paying more attention to a group I've that kind of started the same way as Mindshare, which was a group of seven, eight, and nine figure women entrepreneurs who were like, let's let's hang out together and share ideas. So this happened a year ago. I did not intend to start another business, and now I have a a business with Cynthia Garcia of ITN, and we have this amazing group of women who get together and share ideas and support each other. So, Incredible. yes, and that will be my next one is going to be when I was, you know, starting out, there were no women role models. I had that one mentor who was a woman and she was like such a rarity. Um, and so I want to help, like when you start to look at women who have been successful in business and have broken seven figures, it's a minute we call ourselves the unicorn club because it's like they're unicorns. And, you know, I think I, I just want to help more of them have a real positive way to see how they can do this and be a mom too. And this mentor of yours, are you still in touch with her? Is she still alive? I wish she's not alive. And I, you know, I, I can't even, I know she knows. Yeah, I was like, I can't knows. even tell her, but I know she knows. Mm. Well, they can find you online on Instagram, JJ Virgin, and the JJ Virgin podcast. And of course, one of your four New York Times bestselling books, including Warrior Mom. We'll link to all of them in the show notes. JJ, again, thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.